who's the girl with the big pile of dirty laundry on her bedroom floor? Me. It's because I'm too busy talking to you guys. This is Beekeeper Confidential. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. I hope you guys have been enjoying this show. I really have a lot of fun making it and going out and interviewing beekeepers. I'm learning a lot and thank you to everybody who's listening. And also, I want to make an extra special mention of my newest patrons, Tyler James and Mark Summer. Thank you for signing up to be a patron of this podcast and my work with the bees. If you want to be cool like Mark and Tyler, you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. Patrons that sign up to help me help the bees get access to exclusive content and they get to ask questions that I air on my episodes, like a question from Tyler this week. He writes, how much of a commitment is beekeeping? I travel a lot for work, but after hearing the Melatology episode of Ologies, hey... And of course, this podcast, beekeeping is something that I'm very much interested in trying out. Is it a daily activity or will the bees be okay for two or three days unattended? Tyler, you should totally try it out. It's not a daily activity unless you want it to be. I like to go out and visit my bees every single day. Even though I'm not opening the hives, I like to just hang out and watch them. I have a couple of chairs set up by my beehives. But you know what? If you can't be there for a few days, that's okay too. And it really depends on the time of year. Springtime and summertime can be busier because you're keeping an eye on your bees to see if they're going to swarm. You're keeping an eye on the hive to make sure they have enough space to make honey. And of course, in the fall, you're going to be checking your hives to make sure they're ready to go into winter. But really what you want to do, Tyler, is get connected with your local beekeeping association, start going to meetings, start reading books, learn as much as you can, and then just dive in. Buy a hive, get some bees, and enjoy the magic. Now this episode is super rad. I'm talking with Tim Wessels and he has an apiary located at a place called Green Anchors. Green Anchors is located on the Willamette River right alongside Cathedral Park. If there is an iconic bridge in Portland, it is the Cathedral Bridge. It's gothic and beautiful, and I've seen it in bajillions of paintings. So not only does this apiary have a beautiful view of that, he also has an on-site laboratory. He has worked tirelessly to build up this apiary that's loaded with good nutrition for his bees, which is an area of study that he is really, really interested in. I had so much fun. This is one of the coolest field trips I've ever been on, Tim. Oh, you lie. I'm not lying, it's true. Oh, and I also wanna mention that there won't be an episode next week. I'm going to take a week off because this weekend I'm traveling to the Oregon State Beekeepers Conference and I'm going to be down there recording episodes. I've already got one booked and it's going to be awesome. So let's put the key in the ignition and get this episode started.
So I, uh, I found this place from a friend uh, who I met at Saban Orchards, Scott Sutton, who's an incredibly talented artist and uh, uh, ecologist. And he uh, invited me down. And so for the last couple of years, I've been working on building these gardens and, and putting this apiary together. And I just, you know, initially I thought, well, this is just a cool place to hang out. There's a lot of talented artists down here and there's a space that has been provided about this is this area is covers the, the property it covers about seven acres but we have and the portion that they've been sort of devoted to the apiary and and uh, the uh, all the plants and and the, and the gardens that we're building those are that's probably about an acre maybe a little more than an acre as we walk through there you can you'll see the different things that we're building who owns the property it's owned by um, a guy, uh, Peter Bricks is his name, and he is a uh, long time, it's a, it's a name that if you Google it, it goes way back hundreds of years. Uh, Bricks, <laughs> Bricks Maritime was, uh, they had a tug business, they had also a timber business. I don't know all the ins and outs of what they did, but I know that right now he's still the owner and we are leasing the property. We're trying to see if we might be able to purchase the property. And so hopefully we'll be successful and it won't, it'll be a price that is affordable because we're providing a space down here for artists and uh, possible artist residency and, uh, and also for projects like the one that I'm working on, which is the research uh, for not just honeybees, but for pollinators in general mm -hmm. and to devote a space. This is zoned heavy industrial. And as you can see, when we first come around here, the right above us in the Baltimore Woods area and beyond that is, is residential. So it's it's definitely a, a urban urban slash industrial zone. And we're right on uh, in the middle of a Superfund, which was this was all part of a Superfund project, which is still the harbor cleanup, the river with contaminants from past uh, sources of contamination from shipbuilding, ship demolition and you know, all kinds of other, you know, the Schnitzer Steel is right down the road and Port of Portland is our neighbor to the right and to the south of us is uh, Cathedral Park and, and the boat ramp. And so there's uh, quite a bit of um, interest in possibly mitigating existing pollution and um, or, or stop, you know, stopping it, source pollution. And so what we're trying to do, create here is a model for people to come and tour and look at and see what they can do in their own spaces, even though this is a large acre, most people have you know 50 by 100 lots. Mm -hmm. They can get ideas from here and, and plants that, that are good and healthy nutrition for pollinators, and they can get ideas of how to maintain gardens without using excess water and how to uh, create space that will be, um, you know, like I say, provide healthy food for the pollinator. Is One that the, what you're researching? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm basically following the lead of whatever comes out of the honeybee lab at OSU. And the idea being that we provide a space here and the other apiary, which is over at Vanport Wetlands, for a controlled space in an urban environment. They have plenty of uh, sources for, you know, looking at uh, nutrition for honeybees in the ag areas down around Carvalis. There's mm -hmm. farms and crops growing everywhere. But what we'd like to provide is the, the you know, for one, one study that I'd like to propose is looking at, we know that there's some research recently out of the UK that shows that there's an increase in carbohydrates in the food from the uh, the amount of CO2 in our environment, environmental CO2. 
So if that is increased, the carbohydrates of the food, what elements of good, healthy nutrition, you know, the aminos, uh, fatty acids, and the, and the essential things that are uh, nutritious for healthy bees and healthy humans, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same with us. We grow some vegetables as well down here. And, and um, so, you know, if you want a high-carb diet, we're, we're moving in that direction. <laughs> so my question was, like, there's a study that shows what are the CO2 levels? I mean, we're basically underneath the St. John's Bridge, which gets lots of truck traffic up to Highway 30. And we have, uh, I would imagine, I, I would assume that we have a pretty high CO2 level down here. But I've had extremely good success with the bees in this apiary. I, I have about 15 hives in this location, uh, of which are mine. There's a couple of other ones that I have some friends that have their, their colonies down here. They're, oh, this is a cool place. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, but I only lost two hives last winter out of 15. And not only did they survive, they, they were productive and strong and healthy throughout the year. Now, that's not to say that, you know, I always tell people the hive closest to you are going to get the most attention. They're going to, you know, it's just like out of sight, out of mind. The bees that are further away from me, they get less attention, but they're not necessarily doing worse. But I did not have as good a success as I had down here. And the water that's here is, you know, polluted. It's the Willamette River. And, and like I say, this is a super fund area. And we have the bees drinking through the sand. You know how bees drink through the sand. I mean, they don't just land on the water. Terrible swimmers. And uh, <laughs> as they're siphoning through the sand, which is just loaded with silica and as possible asbestos and some of the other contaminants that might be in there, those PCBs, I don't know. Do honeybees have the ability to filter out toxins, water? Well, there's maybe. a project. Maybe we should run that by Ravash, you know. <laughs> Can they, yeah, do they detect, like, this is nasty, let's don't drink Right, this. or I mean, because they have the enzymes to mm-hmm. alter the food that they're bringing back. Are they able to alter I wonder about that. Water? I think about that often, Mandy, and that's a great question. I think, what if they're, you know, well, I'm not sure why they're stronger here other than they get more of my attention. Um, because there's, there's no, um, well, let's say there's little advantage to that for them here nutritionally other than that we plant lots of lots of flowers that are blooming hopefully throughout the the season you know from early march through the end of october early november and and you'll see some of these when we walk through them hopefully i'll be able to plant uh, name the plants and as we walk through the gardens but do your other apiaries have this level of planting uh, no, but they're in, uh, in, they are in, like the Vanport Wetlands is, the, the interesting thing about them, they have, uh, that's about 100 acres, and that apiary has also about 16 hives, and it, it is on a 100-acre site of which about 50 of the acres is underwater for eight or nine months out of the year. But they drain the water out of this wetland in early August, and then uh, a plant called Persicaria comes up. The whole, almost the entire wetland is this persicaria plant, which I didn't know at the time. It's a sort of little, you know, not very noticeable little flower on a plant. Uh, It's a very tiny little flower. But I noticed the bees were really busy on it. I realized, oh, they're getting, are they getting just pollen? Are they getting nectar or both? As it turns out, uh, a few years back, Glenn and I uh, realized there was a honey flow on in September. And we're like, wow, what the heck is going on? And so we, we threw some supers on, and we 
got probably mostly exclusively because most of the you know everything else is pretty done you know pretty much done in yeah. September and we've got this most wonderful light flavored I uh, I remember the time that we first tasted it Glenn goes what do you what do you think that tastes like he goes wait don't tell me write it down and and we both wrote down vanilla and what was funny is that it, it I said vanilla spice chai tea no vanilla spice chai is what I said <laughs> he goes oh, I don't know if I'd go that far but it's uh, but it's um, the fact that there's that much available to them, and there w- there was pollen available also from these this plant um, at that time of the year to you know have it suddenly come into bloom right. in September. Because we don't really have a second flow. No, there's a, there's a t- there is a tiny fall flow that happens uh, in this area anyway, but it's not you know it's not like that. It's not 55 acres right at their doorstep, and so um, <laughs> yeah. So that you know so. I, I don't have a control group uh, that's necessarily, you know, like if I had a dozen hives here and a dozen hives in another location that I could, um, you know, just another urban area, I, could, I might be able to run some other projects and, and do some other studies. But this is what I have, you know, and, and, and they're available. And anybody that wants to do a study, I would welcome them. And anybody that listens to your podcast, we're looking for ideas and, and anything to do with not just honeybee, but uh, other other native bees. We have a group uh, from Portland State University that are studying the um, frequency of uh, other pollinators in this area. And, mm-hmm. and we've identified, I'd have to check with the group that I work with down here, but we put out um, little surveys throughout the apiary here, and we've identified at least a half a dozen other bees, oh. and, and maybe twice that. I, I'll have to check and see what they're, <laughs> what they're seeing. But uh, there I'm, is a surge in popularity right now of of native pollinators. Yes, and identifying them and supporting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I have a good friend that is the um, uh, Mace Fawn, and he's actually my neighbor as well. He's the national pollinator director. I think that's his title for Xerces Society. Oh wow! And um, and you know when I first met him, he was I was I, we were working on a group to try and acquire a property over in our neighborhood to, you know, a broken down church and see if we can make it into a community center. And we were all kind of introducing ourselves. And at the time, I was the president of Portland Urban Beekeepers, which you are now the president <laughs> of. And uh, I was just talking about, well, I guess my claim to fame is that I've, I've been able to um, introduce literally hundreds of people into the, the wonderful world of, of beekeeping. And, uh, and I remember his words to me were similar to... Um, well, that might not be such a good thing. Oh! And I was heartbroken. I, I, I was so stressed out about that for years. I was like, uh, for months anyway, for sure. I was like, oh my God, I'm, what am I doing? I'm, I'm doing a bad thing. And he, he was talking about mostly that, uh, which there's no definitive research, according to Dr. Karen, has told me that that says that uh, increased honeybees could be detrimental to the native population other than they're all squabbling over the same resources and food. Mm-hmm. Beekeepers are asked questions all the time. And probably the number one question is, how many times do you get stung? The number two question is, what can an everyday person do to help the bees? Plant more flowers, use less pesticides, and try and make flowers available as long as possible, early season bloomers to late season bloomers. And in doing that, We are helping the native bee population because the flower patch is not exclusive to honeybees. Moths, 
wasps, butterflies, hummingbirds, native bees, they all take advantage of that. So if you're having a little bit of a guilt complex about keeping honeybees, don't. By encouraging people to plant more flowers that help your honeybees, you're also helping out the native bee population. But do you have a science background? No. No, I've just always loved science. I've, I, I, uh, my only background in science is that I read, uh, that's what I read, my wife always tells me, you should read novels and stories, they're more interesting, <laughs> I said, no, they're not more interesting, I, you know, I, I always read for information, and the more data, the more excited I get, I, I like to, um, you know, I like to learn what's going on, and when I follow the new research that's going on, not just here, and, uh, or at OSU, but around the world, you know, what other people are looking at, and, mm-hmm. And the one that, fortunately, that's what uh, OSU, what the Honeybee Lab is focusing on is honeybee nutrition. Uh, that's most of their research is, is around that. And, and it just so happens that as a single dad, I always worried about nutrition for my, for my three sons. And I really focused on that. I've been pretty much a, a, a vegetarian for most of my life. And, um, and I always think about, you know, you are what you eat. And when I take that, you know, and move that to the bees, I think well, the same thing must be must apply to them as well. I mean, if if they only have food that's available to them, that's the equivalent of the fast food restaurants, then you know, then they're not probably going to be able to fight off the viruses that are vectored by the mites. That's and, so true. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, you know, I I think it's true, but I really I always tell people this when they say something if it's. You know, it's fine. I, I say a lot of anecdotal type things that I witness and see on a daily basis. But until there's peer-reviewed research, it's like, I'm not buying it. You know, or, or, or it's like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's a study that proves that. Yeah. And so that's why I, I sort of like the science part of it, because it, it, it's not fake news. It's not, it's, you know, it's unfortunate that we've come to that time in our society where everything is questioned but you know i i that's why if you stick close to science there really shouldn't be a question if uh, if it's peer reviewed how long <clears> has <throat> honeybee nutrition been something that's on the radar screen of like the overall virility of of bee health you know i suspect uh they've been looking at it in you know a variety of schools and um i think it's just come to the forefront because I follow what they're doing at OSU and, mm-hmm. and a couple of other educational centers. And I, it's just piqued my interest, like I say, because I've always been interested in nutrition. So I would say, you know, maybe the last 10 years, it's pretty, mm-hmm. it's pretty new. Uh, it's just there's a lot more studies that show the bees that have healthy sources of pollen and nectar available to them. We, we know that, for instance, the viruses, there's at least, at least 20. And I think uh, I was talking to Ramesh recently, and he had said that there was a couple of possibly new strains of existing viruses vectored by the mite, and um, which is disheartening that there's a, you know twenty plus viruses that they, they right. Really what more did the bees have to be? Yeah, up against? it's like oh my it's god, just another thing. It's another thing. Here are just a few examples of some of the viruses that honeybees are dealing with: sac brood, deformed wing virus, black queen cell virus, chronic bee paralysis virus, acute bee paralysis virus complex acute bee paralysis virus, cashmere bee virus, Israeli acute paralysis virus, slow bee paralysis virus. Oh my God, our bees are dealing with so much. 
But out of these, the most recognizable one that we see in our hives is the deformed wing virus. These bees are born with deformed wings. They will never participate in the health of the colony. They will never fly. They will never be able to fulfill any of the job functions that the bees were designed to do. There's no treatment for deformed wing virus. There's only prevention. But even taking preventative measures won't guarantee that your bees won't have this at some point. When, when <coughs> were the days of basic beekeeping for you? How did you get into bees? Um, because you've well, been doing it for a long time. Yeah, it, everybody says that, but it's really not been that long. I, was, um, I worked at the Port of Portland for about 30 years, and um, uh, there was a few people there. Well, first of all, my grandpa had honeybees. We used to live right next door to him. And, oh, boy. And, uh, <laughs> and I just remember when I was a kid that, uh, gosh, I want, you know, I want to I um, do that. And then I remember as a, um, uh, when I was, my sons and I raced on a bicycle team, we used to ride by an, an apiary, a pretty large one, too. I mean, there must have been, you know, 50-plus hives out in this field. But it was one of our training routes. And Every time we went by there, I, I would look at those hives and go, oh, I want to do that. And that was in the early 2000s. And so I actually haven't been, I, I think I got my first colony in my, I, I got three. I started off with three uh, in 2009. Wow. So it really yeah. hasn't been that long. Yep. No. Well, that's an amazing story because <laughs> in such a short amount of time, you have been so engaged and well, contributed so much. Oh, thank you so much. Like, yeah, I don't, I feel like I'm not contributing enough, which is why I'm looking for projects <laughs> if anyone's interested. That's why you've done so much. Well, you know, Mandy, I, uh, I, I, I had this realization. I was actually, this is a, a silly little story, but I was sitting at my desk at the Port of Portland, which my job at the port used to take me out into all the marine terminals and the navigation where they do the dredging and down at the airport and and I was, as, uh, as part of my job, was to sell the surplus. And, uh, and as the fleet manager, I'd look, get out of the office. And then pretty soon, uh, in the last several years there, I realized I was sitting in front of a computer all day long, basically looking at spreadsheets and you know, addressing emails. And, and uh, I thought, I'm dying. I literally thought, I honestly thought I was having a physiological reaction to being in this fluorescent lit office space you know, nine hours a day. And then one day, it was right after we moved and relocated the offices for the second time in less than 10 years that I was there, which is a big undertaking. We moved out to the airport and I was sitting there at my office window and I was just thinking, I actually had been thinking about bees that day, daydreaming, when just viewing my face out of the computer screen for a minute. And a honeybee landed on the window of my office. And I, and I just started thinking, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to retire and do something. Because I had been reading, even though I didn't get my first colony until 2009, I had been reading about bees for several years prior to that. And when I started reading and about the things that, you know, that were starting to happen, I think the first time I had saw anything about relating to CCD or colony collapse disorder was maybe in 2006. And so, you know, just because I didn't have a colony before then didn't mean I wasn't just reading everything. And I was very interested in it. But I didn't want to jump into it, uh, not knowing quite a bit about it. So I had been reading for several years prior to that about, you know, I had, had subscribed to the American Bee Journal and Bee Culture and, and, uh, and then, you know, followed pretty much the studies that are going on in, at the various universities. And, and so when I saw that, I thought, gosh, dang, this is not good news, you know. And, of course, a lot of it was sensationalized and they gave it this 
yeah. this title, colony collapse disorder, you know, to, you know, so a lot of it was just the, the way media handled the, the information because it was, it's, I think it's the way to convey the message that this is how serious yeah. it is. They're, and it is serious. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very serious, but it's, it's a multitude of, of issues that we're dealing with. And it seems like it, it just ebbs and flows, but it, it, it never gets less than a few things that we have to deal with for the bees. But uh, I thought when that little bee landed on my window, you know, I was thinking, is she coming to say, yeah, get out here, bud. We need you out here. Get away from that office and come help us out. And so I, I know that's kind of a, a goofy thing, but it made me realize that um, for my own health and maybe to be able to help with, uh, with the honeybees, um, I should go ahead and retire, give somebody else a job. And let, and let them do that. And so that's that's what I did. And then, and then that's kind of when it all began. And I've been pretty much focused on that since that uh, since I retired. It's I, kind of like working with bees is something so much bigger than yourself. Yes. Well, I think they're just fascinating. And, and I'd never find that, oh, I'm, I've seen that so many times, I'm bored with it. There's things that I've yeah. seen hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, and I... And it still brings a smile to my face or, or a concern to my brain when I see, oh, you know, like I had some kids here from the Sabin school um, just a few weeks ago. And so I picked a colony and I said, let's, let's go into this and let's see if we can find the queen, you know. And I, I like to have school groups come out here because they're, the kids are just amazing. And, uh, and, I, and I always think that at some point, you know, maybe after I talk to 100 kids, one in 100 might say, I remember talking to this old dude and he was showed us the bees and, and I, I got stung, so to speak. And uh, now I'm going to study to be an entomologist because I think the, the, you know, some of the solutions to the problems that we're having, they're not going to happen in my lifetime. I don't think it's, you know, so it'd be nice to have, you know, news researchers and people that are interested in studying bees, you know. Um, but uh, what I was going to say is that <laughs> I had these kids out here and we were looking at a, a colony and I picked one of the ones that's on the hill here and they I had just done a, um, a varroa mite check uh, just a week prior but I just sampled the apiary I only did out of the 16 hives here I only did four of the colonies and mm-hmm. you know, they're, you'll see they're pretty spread out yeah I don't have any of them closer than like 10 feet apart I thought well there is a couple that are pretty close but um, I try and keep them you know 10 to 20 feet apart and um, and so I one of the ones that I checked was not one of the ones that I had sampled the day the the week before and um, so we're in there looking and I and they're going I go look and here's here's a, a little bee that's emerging out of her cell and and they're oh it's so cute look at that and and as she was coming out bit by bit I could see that her wings were deformed oh. and um, and it's like and they're like oh they're all, they're still all excited about the little baby bee and then I started I had to tell them about you know not everything is is uh, you know happy times in here you know and, and here's here's an example of what we're dealing with but I thought it was important for them to know that and so yeah not only did she crawl out with severely deformed wings but then another bee walked by with a varroa mite on her and uh and I pointed it out and sure enough that with their young eyes they saw it they saw exactly what I was saying I said so this this hive has a lot of mites and and I told them a little bit about that Let's talk about Varroa. There is no such thing as a mite-free hive. As much as we want to believe that, it's just not true. Mites are everywhere. 
if you have a colony of bees that is showing ability to handle the varroa loads on their own, that's excellent. But remain vigilant because so many times I hear people who have really strong colonies crash. It's varroa. It builds up. It builds up in the hive. And if you're not being proactive about testing and monitoring and watching the brood pattern, you could be hit with some pretty bad news. So by staying proactive and monitoring your hive, it will help you stay ahead of the varroa curve. Whether you are treating or not, at least be aware of what's happening in your hive. You know, we can't keep bees the way that our grandparents did. No. My, my great-great-grandfather was a beekeeper. I can't keep bees the way that he did. As much as I love the idea of not treating and letting them be free to, to do their thing without me getting involved, I, I don't think that in good conscience I can do that. Well, good for you, Mandy. I think, I, I think what talks to me is a comment that uh, Dewey told me about one time. When I have to say, when I first, when I got my first colony, I was actually, and even though I had been doing a lot of reading and a lot of studying, it was still relatively new um, information about the effects of, you know, treatment-free. I mean, the benefits of treatment-free or the downsides mm -hmm. of treatment-free beekeeping. And I thought, you know, what, I was leaning in that direction. I thought, you know, I don't use chemicals in my life. I don't, you know, uh, I mean, other, well, that's not true. I don't use, I buy organic vegetables and everything, but I, I try to really minimize. I don't, you know, I try not to go to the doctors when I have to or whatever. I guess my, I, what I'm getting at is that it didn't fit in my, the way I would garden. It didn't, you know, I don't, I didn't use chemical fertilizers on my garden. So why would I use chemicals to, in my hives? Right. And so, uh, but I, I have to say that Dewey had mentioned to me that he goes, well, uh, you know, and I call it Darwinian beekeeping, you know, is that yeah. it? And, you know, he said, well, that might be fine, but, you know, if you have an extra hundred years to let evolutionary process, you know, benefit from that. that. And, uh, um, and I thought, well, I don't, you know, and I think that's part of where I was came to my existential crisis was like, oh, I'm running out of time. I got to do something right now and get some payback on this and, and, and make some impact. And, and so I, I changed how I, I addressed it. I don't, I don't, I'm not saddened anymore. Like I initially, when I lost a hive, I would just, Oh my God, this is terrible. This is the worst thing ever, you know? And, mm -hmm. and now, um, you know, under proper management, if I lose a hive, I go, well, good riddance. You know, if you, if you guys can't cut it with the help that I've given you, then, and, and I'm, I, you know, I try to, you know, manage the bees in a responsible manner. And I don't, uh, I don't feel that same anguish that I used to feel when a colony would die. And, you know, I certainly feel happy when they don't die. And, and yeah. when I have like the survival rate I had in this apiary, just, oh, I'm still scratching my head. on like, how, how <laughs> you guys are in like one of the worst environments ever. And you, you had the best, it was the, by far the best overwintering rate I've ever had. In you know in the eight in the nine nine years that I've had bees, it's really incredible. <clears throat> yeah, I don't I don't know what it is, but that's why I want to. I got questions, and um, yeah. I don't treat them too much differently than any of the other bees, and or uh, my practices really haven't changed that much. I'm going to be following Tim's research as he tries to discover why the bees in this apiary have done so well, and as I get updates, I will share them with you.
I'd like to experiment on a bunch of different things, but I think um, one thing that we were trying to do, but we just didn't have the funds to do to to do it very often. I was fortunate enough to send a couple of pollen samples, and so I would collect, you know, a half a baggie of pollen, yeah, and send it down to the honeybee lab, and then they would send it. Um, they would do the nutritional analysis and protein analysis down there at OSU, and um, and then they would also we would match it up with the flowers that were in the in the area, you know, in the, in the areas that the main two area apiaries that I have, where I have at least a dozen or more hives, are um, this hundred acre spot over by the Vanport and uh, and here, mm-hmm. um, and so there you have a little bit of control in that and the, what's what's the, what they're bringing in. I mean I. I, out here, I'm sure, you know, the bees fly, if they need to, they fly for miles, but uh, they probably don't need to in those two areas, these two areas very far. Um, so, um, so we look at the pollen and we look at, uh, and match it up with the flowers the best we can. I think they send it off to uh, one of Ramesh's colleagues down in, um, at Texas A&M. Um, and so, but that there's a, there's a pretty hefty bill attached to the pollen analysis. So, um, I, you know, I, I have quite a bit invested already in the bees. When I start asking my wife, can I spend $300 for a pollen analysis five times a year? You know, <laughs> she's like, okay, but that's your vacation money, you know, so we're, uh, I have to be careful with some of the, the cost. When you go on vacation or like, I know you like to go on hiking adventures. Do you miss your bees? Yeah, I do. I think, I think about them. I mean, I don't know that, uh, I think, gosh, did I, you know, did I take care of, you know, cause I've got like 35 hives right now. And I think, gosh, wait a minute. Did I, you know, and I just think, was I supposed to do something with these bees and without having my notebook with me, I think, oh. but no, I go in, when I go out to the, uh, on hikes and go out to the woods, I actually spend time looking at other bees mm-hmm. and, uh, and that it makes me happy when I'm up and way up in the mountains. And I see, I was up with some friends a couple of years ago, way high on Mount hood on the, on the North side. And, it, it just made me happy to see honeybees on these wildflowers that, you know, beautiful little fl- wildflowers in the, in the fall, um, really high. I mean, we were like at 7,000 feet and they were just, I thought, where do you, where do you guys live? You know, and, right. You know, <laughs> where'd you come from? Cause we've been hiking for hours to get here. And, you know, I just think about wh- where their home is and, and how did they look? You know, I, I was trying to, uh, let, every hike I go on, I try to take pictures uh, as close as I can and then to see if I see anything going on with the bees. So, it, it, you know, even though I'm out on a hike, I'm still thinking about the bees. Yeah. Do you ever not think about the bees? Well, probably. I'm sure there's a time, but I, I can't. <laughs> I'm sure there was one time when I didn't think about them, but no, I, you know, I do spend a lot of time uh, with them, but uh, fortunately, I'm uh, involved in this project down here where we're doing some other things that kind of tie to the bees with mm-hmm. the gardening and yeah. we're doing a, a form of permaculture down here called Hugelkultur, uh, which is a German word for you pick, we pick big giant logs out of the river. We'll, I'll show you this when we go on our tour. And, and giant logs, we pull them out with a backhoe or a forklift and pull them out of the river and, and then we bury them under the soil and we bring in our own soil, uh, you know, good soil that that it's not contaminated or something because mm-hmm. this is a brown field. Yeah. And we'll uh, bury the big logs under and all the mycelium and the moisture that is retained in those in the, in the ground is just wonderful for the plants. And there's warmth. So well, that's one of the things I thought about is the, 
these bees are in colonies that are on tops of these mounds that are, have logs buried underneath them, and the and the uh, degradation and the and the breakdown of the of the log underneath is creating. I mean, in the winter time, sometimes we see little vent holes, and there's actually little steam puffs coming out of the ground. Wow! So that's a question: is there is there uh, is there something to do with the mycelium that's everywhere around them? Because we have a we had, he unfortunately just lost his business, but a guy who grew culinary mushrooms right here on site. Oh. It's a wonderful little business. He grew, I think, oyster mushrooms, maybe shiitake mushrooms. Um, and we would get the straw that he grew the mushrooms out of, which was just covered in the white mycelium that uh, that the mushrooms had been growing. And some of them still still had big mushrooms growing out of them. You know, it's like, oh man, I'm taking that home. But um, <laughs> we, would, we would use that straw to cover our beds. And we do that quite frequently, uh, and it was, you know, well, I don't, is there a benefit to that? You know, these are all the questions that I wonder, why, is there a combination of things, but why did these bees do so much better than um, not just my other bees, but other people's bees? I, I lost a few more at, um, at Vanport, and uh, I think, I think I, last year I probably only had about 30 hives or maybe 28 hives total last year. And um, I'd have to check my records, but I think I my total loss was was less than eight. I think it was seven or eight, and only two from here. I got to go on a tour of this place, and it was freaking amazing. Not only did he have this beautiful garden with his beehives and his little bee house, there's a tugboat, there's modified golf carts for riding around. There's numerous art studios set up around the place. And it reminded me of a really sophisticated Burning Man Ground Zero, like where all the magic and all the planning for something like that would take place. It's so unique and so special that there are places like this for artists and communities to come together and get that creative synergy going. In this this section of the apiary, I've got this big circle. I tried to follow the rules of, you know, south southwestern facing for the most part and um and this section right here in the center will be uh we're going to be building the gardens in this area this winter wow. and this is going to be kind of our other native pollinator and butterfly base butterfly garden we've just uh trying to learn more about some of the other pollinators and we want to provide the space for not just honeybees but the, the honeybees are they benefit from all the work we're doing down here I, I mean I, I put these big browns underneath them and I keep you know these are screen bottom boards but I'm not some mm -hmm. of them you know, like I've winterized like all most of them have a partial covering covering the screen bottom boards and mm -hmm. I and, and I think at least because we get quite a bit of wind right right off the river um, it re it reduced the draft and the you know that that blast of cold December January wind I think, you know, at least I, my thinking is that, and I try not to be, um, I, I tend to anthropomorphize my bees so, so much and like, <laughs> oh, they're, they're freezing to death in there, but they know how to stay warm, but I don't need, we don't need a blast of cold wind blowing right on them. That right. just makes it more difficult. So, uh, yeah, partial closure. And then see, but these are, these mounds, they're not only surrounded by logs, but there's logs underneath the soil as well. <clears throat> Where did you get the idea to do it like this? Well, uh, S Scott uh, Sutton, who's my colleague down here, is 
Uh, like I said, not only besides being a wonderful artist, he has a he's got he's got a degree in landscape architecture as well. Mm. Besides uh, fine arts, and so um, he's kind of it's mostly his design, and uh, we, you know we all contribute and and work together to try and create a, a, a space that's that people can come to and, and like I say learn ideas not mm-hmm. just about you know what they can do uh, for bees and, and that but what they uh, ways that they can plants that they can grow that are sustainable and and ways that they can minimize their water we've got like over here if you walk down this way this is one of the bees this little colony here in this single deep here just keeps kicking I mean and they have some <laughs> of the most beautiful brood out this building here is the idea was is that we would put the bees inside and see and I normally keep three colonies in here mm-hmm. but this is I lost one that was right inside here oh, and I lost wow. one that was setting right down below here so the two that I lost were not on tops of mounds it was one that was sitting down below here like kind of just this side of that log yeah. and then one of the ones in here which you would think would have by far the best benefit He's sheltered and he's up off the yeah. ground. And, and you can see the way this works is um, uh, normally we uh, we have a window that goes in here. These are the movie stars. Oh, yeah? Yeah, <laughs> these, these are the ones that were in a film that was, uh, yeah. that we were, uh, a friend of mine was the beekeeper in the film. And we these, yeah. were, these were the bees that we brought on site for the, that, sec, that piece of that movie. Oh, that's so cool. How did you end up being a... Uh, like a consultant and beekeeper for the film she uh the producer and the director uh, which is it's a wonderful film Anne rosalini um and deborah granick uh-huh. uh, is the director um they came to visit me i don't know how they they i think they sent an email or something and they came and visited me in my backyard and we just hit it off we, i really like those two and and they seem to like me and they um asked me to participate in their film I, I felt fortunate it was really a lot of fun what a great experience yeah it was these um so funny story i auditioned for that oh i did too and um susan who got the part she had her audition right before me mm-hmm. and when i got there that day i was in the parking lot scoping out the competition i was looking at who was going into the building and when i saw her i thought oh boy I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and she brought some of her skeps with her. And I just, I I knew they were going to choose her. Yeah. She's so perfect for it. She really was. <laughs> I mean, it, I think initially what they were looking for, I tried out for it, and I actually got a call back. Um, Whoa. Uh, it was uh, initially they said they wanted, you know, somebody that was like not your regular beekeeper, you know, not your everyday beekeeper, and sort yeah. of this gruff so I, I came in with this idea of this, you know, like, you know, when when the young lady comes and says, what are those? What are you doing? Like, what do you mean, what are those? Well, they're beehives, for God's sakes, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and so that was sort of the, the tone of voice I used. And then, and then um, but then it's supposed to be a tender, sweet little moment. Yeah. And I think it yeah. would make more, way more sense for that to be a woman than a guy especially in this day and age to be like, yeah, come here, sweetie. Let me show you the bees. You right. know? Do you like honey? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just too creepy, you know, but, uh, but I, um, I, I enjoyed every bit of that. That was a, a nice experience. And I think these bees, 
being hauled around and taken out to where the, the main, you know, where they shot the film was way out in East Estacada. Hmm. And uh, so I hauled them out there with, uh, and uh, I had a handful of hives that were just, um, you know, st staged empty boxes. They looked, but, you know, yeah. but this is the ones they worked with. Wow. The film that Tim is referring to is called Leave No Trace. And I swear, at least half of the beekeepers in the Portland area auditioned for this. You know, put, it, put your nose right there and smell just. Mm. Does that smell good? Can you that. smell it? Don't freak out. We're not sniffing farts. <laughs> We're sniffing a beehive. That's a good. I, I that's love a good smell. Propolis, so much. Oh really? Well, I, here's a piece for you. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I have one colony that makes really excessive amounts of it, and I pulled this like near golf ball-sized blob oh that was. God. It was really like they just had it there as extra. Oh yeah. And um. So I put it in a jar and I sniff it sometimes. <laughs> oh, I love the smell. I don't know. I think there's, I tell people that all the time. And they ask me, why, what is, why don't we like that smell? I said, I don't know. Yeah. This is, well, and it's like, oh, I should probably why do beehives smell so good? Is it the honey? I don't think so. I mean, that that's part of it, but. No, that's part. No, you're right. People always, when I, I bring them out here, I, or I'll show them a piece of honey, a uh, beeswax, or, uh, and they always, the first thing they do is smell it. <laughs> um, so this is their entrances. Uh, this is so super cool. I've talked to quite a few people who want to have the Slovenian beekeeping houses, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was the initial, that's where the initial concept from, that my friend Scott, who's the, he designed this and, um, there's a few things that I see as, from a beekeeper standpoint, that are not as pragmatic uh -huh. about the building. You know, like just being when I need to work on the bees, it's, you know, that's why I had to pull the window out. It was, oh. just, it was, it was cruel and unusual punishment for the bees would come out of the hive inside there, and then they're banging their heads against the windows trying to get out. It's like, no, I'm not gonna, I can't, I can't deal with that. And as as it's turned out. Um, during the beekeeping season, it's not that big a deal to pull the window out. Yeah. And, well, the idea, and see, we have the, they're off cambered a little bit. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, again, these, these of all the hives in this area, as you can see, they're, they're many feet apart. These are right next to each other. Yeah. And, well, I'm, glad you, I'm so glad you came down. <laughs> you know, I'm not pouring down raining because we kept putting oh, it off. And, and, uh, I thought it was going to rain today, but it's sunny and getting warm. Oh, on my way out here, I was thinking about how beekeeping can take you in so many places. And in the swarm season, you know, you're getting to drive all over town yeah, and meet, meet the new people. people. Where the swarms are, yeah. And with doing this show, I get to drive around and visit people's apiaries and take up their time. If I'm so yeah. lucky. And I do feel lucky every day. Be sure to check out my blog at waggleworkspdx.com for notes from today's episode and some amazing pictures for my field trip at Green Anchors. You can also find Beekeeper Confidential on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks to all the bees in my hive that make this show possible. I couldn't do it without you. Until next time, may the buzz be with you.